So let's get down to business. We have lots to cover today, lots to talk about, and I would invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 9, verse 1. John 9, verse 1. We're going through the whole Gospel of John in a big, long series, verse by verse, doing the whole thing, and we're actually going to be doing the whole chapter of John 9 this morning. So I hope that you brought lunch. I hope that you brought some afternoon snacks, maybe made supper plans close by, okay? No, it's good. It's, it's a really, really awesome chapter in the Gospel of John. And it's a little bit in a good way of a hodgepodge today in that we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different things. And what's cool is whenever we do this, whenever God's Word is open and it's like this, the Lord might hit you with something and hit you with something else and hit you with something else and He just ministers to us in His Word like that. Isn't that cool how God's Word works? Yes. So John chapter 9 revolves around an account where Jesus performed a miracle. Somebody say miracle. miracle. And in the wake of this miracle, we get to see the responses of a whole bunch of people, which we'll be talking about later. But let's begin by talking about the miracle. John 9, 1, it says, As he, that would be Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, I said a couple weeks ago that there is no such thing as a stupid question. And I hold to that. I stand by that. But while there might not be such a thing as a stupid question, there's definitely such thing as not very good questions. This would fall into that category. This is like a super rough question. Who sinned? Was it this guy or his parents that caused him to be born blind? It's like cringy to read almost. And I can think of at least a few things wrong with this. First of all, super judgy, right? Super judgmental question in a matter that these guys really don't know anything about. They don't have any context, any background that we're told. It's really none of their business, but they feel compelled to offer their opinion in the matter. Now, I'm sure that we have never done anything like that, but uh, that's what's happening here. Another thing, the logic doesn't even track with that question. If you really think about it, they say, could it have been that this man sinned and as a result he was born blind? That doesn't even make any sense because if he came out of the womb already blind, when did he have the chance previous to that to sin to render that kind of punishment? Well, he didn't. It doesn't make any sense. So that's partly why it's a bad question. Another reason it's a bad question is because it reeks of bad theology. Somebody say theology. theology. That's a churchy word that essentially means what you believe about God. And theology is important because your theology affects your practice, right? In other words, what you believe about God affects the way you behave one way or another. And I personally am not super shocked when non-believers sort of put out their bad theology. When you hear, you, we've all heard some probably weird things. I'm not really surprised because non-believers are just that. They don't believe. Like, why would they have good theology? Anything that they do have, maybe they've heard somewhere or they've picked up along the way or they've made assumptions about God. So that's one thing. But here's another problem with this. Look where the question came from. Who, who, look in verse 2. Who asked the question? Oh, man. This is not a good day for them. It's his disciples. These are the people that literally hung around with Jesus all the time. These were like the insiders, right? These are the people that claimed Jesus and identified with Jesus, and they were the ones that asked the question. And I don't mean to say, you know, oh, they're so bad and I'm so good. The reason I point all that out is to say, this is a reminder for us that it's sometimes the people that are on the inside that have the bad theology. None of you guys, but people like in a different church, way far away, different province, different city, right? No, sometimes, like this is a reminder and, and an encouragement and a warning for us. Hey, we need to check ourselves to make sure that what we believe lines up with God's word. And 
Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not even I'm not even talking about things that are like, oh, you might have your opinion on a secondary matter of scripture, that, and you're over here, and I believe this, like. How often should we take communion? Or what kind of worship style is the best? Or I'm not even talking about things like that. I'm talking about things like, I've heard people, a couple of different people say this to me pretty recently. They've said, I grew up in such and such a denomination and my family is of such and such denomination and I left such and such denomination to come here to your church and when the people of such and such denomination or my family heard that I left that, they said, well, you've left this denomination, so you're going to hell. And I said, oh, that's too bad. You had a good run, I guess. And I said, well, here's what I said to someone. I said, so I'm sure that when they told you that, that you were going to hell, they sat you down and opened up the word and showed you the chapter and verse where it says that in plain English, right? Well, I can guarantee they didn't because it ain't in here. Just saying. So, you get my point. We need to make sure that what we believe, what we buy into, what we're bringing into our practice as believers corresponds to this right here. Right? We actually have no excuse for blatantly, wildly bad theology because it's all right here in the Word. Got to be in the Word. Got to know your stuff. And that's a, obviously a growing thing. Now, their bad theology evidently swirled around this idea that God is some sort of punisher, right? Oh, this guy sinned, and as a punishment, God made him come out blind. And punishment, of course, we're talking about you did something bad, and you're going to pay for it. I'm going to beat you down. It's not to build up. It's to tear down. That's their view of God. Or maybe that God is a, a, a proponent of something like karma, right? That if you do something bad, God is right there to bring the hammer down on you and in exact measure of what you did bad, you're going to get repaid. Like you've heard of karma. What these guys are saying is it's evident because of this guy's hardship. He's going through a hardship, so he must have done something really dumb or his family did something really dumb and now God's punishing him. And that isn't super good theology. We could bust that open like a hundred ways from Sunday. Um, for instance, the Bible says, rather than, oh, you have a hardship, you must have sinned, the Bible actually says, well, there, the reason that there's hardship in the world and the reason that people all over the place go through hardship is because of the presence of sin in the world. It's not necessarily because you did X, Y, Z, and here's the cause and effect. It's because we live in a broken world. Have you noticed that? We live in a crazy world, a painful world, a confusing world. And that's because there is sin in the world. And God never designed it to be like that, by the way. God designed the world and everything in it to be good and very good, a place of flourishing for us. But we have brought sin into that equation. We have broken what God has created. We have corrupted it. That's why the world is so crazy but the Bible also says that even though we've done this and even though our sin separates us from God, in and of ourselves, we can't stand before God and be righteous because of our sin. Even so, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God sends Jesus Christ, his son, to the earth to die on a cross in your place for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you don't have to be punished. You want to talk about punishment, that's really what the Bible says. And if you really look at God and look at his word and, and understand God's heart, punishment is a last resort for him. Okay? It's not the first response, but a last resort. If you're not a Christian, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, you are not right before God, and right now he's being patient with you. The Bible says that God does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to knowledge of the truth. So as long as you are still alive and breathing, if you're not a Christian, you have a chance to come to know Jesus. But if you don't, and if your life comes to an end, you will stand before God, and if you've never aligned yourself and attached yourself to Jesus, you will be on the hook to pay for your sins. Jesus died to pay for them, but if you don't accept that, you'll be paying for them. That's what the word says. And you will be punished because God is a God of justice, right? Sin, God's wrath will be poured out on sin, all sin. You will pay for it. it like hell is a real place. Can we just acknowledge that this morning? 
It's not just all sunshine and roses, right? It's a real place. You don't want to be there. You don't want that to be your story. That's where the punishment comes in, though. You see what I'm saying? Like at the end. And if you're a Christian, it's a little bit of a different story for you even still. God will not punish you if you're a Christian. And the reason why is because he's already punished Jesus. You think about it. God is a God of justice, like I just said, and his wrath must be poured out for our sin. Well, what did Jesus do on the cross? God's wrath was poured out for our sin on him on the cross. And God's justice doesn't go a little short or a little too heavy. It's perfect justice. And Jesus paid it all on the cross. He said it is finished. So God doesn't need to punish you if you're a Christian because you've already come under the punishment that Jesus took. He's already picked up your tab, in other words. If anyone's ever done that to you at a restaurant, you know how good of a feeling that is, right? And if you're a Christian, that's your story. So what I'm saying is, when you're in a place of hardship as a believer, what you should not say is, oh, God is punishing me. No, he's not. God will certainly allow you to experience the natural consequences of your dumb decisions. I'm looking in the mirror, right? God, like, it's not as though, okay, if you went out and jumped on purpose off a 30-foot cliff and fell to the bottom and broke both your legs and they put you up in a cast, what you should not say as a reasonable person is, God, why did you cause this? What God would say is, don't bring me into this. Like, you jumped off the cliff. I still love you, but that was pretty dumb, right? And we got to face the consequences. Additionally, God will discipline you as a Christian, but that's not the same thing as punishment. Punishment is to beat you down, to make you pay, but discipline is to build you up. It's to make you more wise. It's to cause you to seek the Lord and trust the Lord more and to become more like Jesus. And it says in God's word, God disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're under, in a place where you're under the discipline of God, it's actually a good thing because he's trying to lead you somewhere. He's trying to build you up. Not the same thing as punishment, though, right? I, I will say this to you. If you're a Christian today, God's heart for you is not one of punishment. It's one of, you're one of his children. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God, and your punishment has already been taken, and you have been bought with a price, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are on a mission, a, a kingdom mission, and you've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and you, Christian, are a citizen of heaven, and you, Christian, are glory-bound. Is that good news for anybody in the house today? Yes. Make it so. Come on. Do better. Thank you. So that's, that was like one verse, okay? Let's keep rolling. Jesus comes along, and he busts their question wide open. He says in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, you're wrong, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I don't know about you, when I read that verse and I meditate on that verse, it makes me feel the very best kind of small. Not in a belittling sense, but in a perspective sense. What that verse, John 9, 3, puts into perspective for us is that God is big Turn to your neighbor and say, God is big. And this verse reminds us that we are not quite as big. And I'll be honest, a lot of the problems that I have faced in my life as I look back, some of them were self-inflicted, and most of them honestly originated from a place where I got that order wrong, where I thought I was this and that God was in here somewhere, right? That's a really good verse, John 9, 3. And what it reminds us is this. God's purposes are loftier than our purposes. We can't see the whole picture. We see this. God sees the whole thing. And what this is saying, John 9, 3, is that this man who unmistakably was going through a hardship, he was born blind, okay? That would be inconvenient and difficult now. But in those days... I dare say it might have been worse because there was no accommodation made socially. Like now, I'm not saying it would be real good, but like at least there's like Braille and things you can read and there's resources. Also back in those days, if you couldn't see, you probably couldn't work. And if you couldn't work, you couldn't eat because there was no social assistance. It says later, this guy was a beggar, a blind beggar. That's a hardship in my books. I don't know what you'd call it. I'd call it a hardship. This man was allowed to go through this hardship. 
Right? Again, we go to this place of, God, you've caused this to happen. That's not what it says here. But what that's implying is God has allowed it to happen, and God is going to use it for his purposes. I wonder, friends, if that might be true with your hardship, with your struggle. Because I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would probably put a large amount of money down on the fact that even in this room right now, some of you guys are going through hardships. You know why? Because that's life. That's the way it is. Could it be true in your hardship that God has a purpose for it, and yes, he's allowing it to happen, but he's going to use it for his glory and for your good? How many of you know that God can do that, and only God can do that? You can be in a mess, and God will eventually, in some way, he'll turn it around and use it for something really good. Anybody know that today? I'll tell you why that is, because it's in the scriptures, Romans 8, 28. God's going to use all things to work for your good if you're a believer. So that's just where we're at. So this guy goes on. Yes? Yes, okay, so you heard it, right? And your guys are the same thing. God is creating a story in your life. God is using everything, the good and the bad, to, for his purposes. And so you're absolutely right. None of us would be in the place you're in right now. Maybe you're not in a real good place, but none of us would be in that place of, here's the story Jesus is building in your life if you hadn't gone through the hardships. And here's the point, here's the point. There is a purpose for your pain. God will not waste your pain. God will use your pain for his glory and your good, for his purposes. Does that make sense? And he might not use it the way we want him to use it, but he's going to use it. He promises right here in his word. He's going to use it. So let that be filtered through the lens of the pain that you're in today. God knows. God sees. God loves you. He cares for you. He is with you, and he's going to use it. Turn to your neighbor and say amen. So we're going to see this to be true in this guy's life. In verse 4, Jesus goes on to say, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, that's a claim to be God. We saw that a couple weeks ago. When he talks about working while it's day, that's, hey, while I'm still here on the earth, Jesus says, because night is coming. That's a prophecy and a prediction of his death, which is coming up speedily at this point. And having said these things, verse 6, he spit on the ground. I got a sidebar. My mother hates when people spit. And I'm just telling you, it's in the word, spitting is godly. (laughs) Taken wildly out of context, spitting is godly. Thank you. Back at the ranch, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Okay, people have often wondered, what's the deal with the spit? What's the deal with the dirt and the mud and kind of putting it on the guy's eyes or whatever? And to be honest, it's not that there's some deep spiritual hidden message there. He uses those resources which are like common things, kind of lowly things, right? We don't tend to think of dirt and spit to be these real honorable things. Jesus uses them to do something amazing and powerful so that we will look at this and say, oh, well, it's not that he had some freaky-deaky new technology that he used or some modern medicine. The guy used dirt and spit, and this guy was healed, okay? That's just showing that it's the power of God on display. Only God could do something like that. He anointed the man's eyes and he said to him in verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, what? Seeing. The guy was healed. It was a miracle. And what I want you to see in that, Jesus anointed him. Jesus instructed him to do something. The man did it. And then he was healed. Do you see that order? It's not that Jesus healed him and then said, go wash yourself in the pool. He said, you go wash in the pool and then you'll be healed. And that's what happened. And that's important for us to remember because, let me ask you, do you believe God still does miracles today? Yes. Does God still heal today? Does God still do powerful signs in the world and in our lives today? Yes. And God 
he's God. He can do whatever he wants, okay? I'm not going to overprescribe that. Sometimes God will do a miracle or something powerful in your life, and it's totally detached from anything you did, okay? Right? You can't pat yourself on the back for some of them. Maybe you were praying for something, longing for it in your heart, but God just did it and said, here you go. That can definitely happen, and we've seen that happen. But let it not be lost on us that sometimes, because we see it right there, sometimes God might be willing and ready and he's certainly able to do something in your life, but sometimes there's an obedience piece attached to it. I'll give you a great example. Money. Somebody says, I got to go to the washroom right now. No, but money's a good one. We say, oh, Lord, I need, I need help with my finances. I'm broke. I, I just need a miracle. I need a shift. I need something. And God says, I can definitely do that. I can def- money is no problem for God. But here's what he says. I want you to trust me with your money first. I'm not just probably going to drop a sack of money at your front door. I want you to trust me with it. And I want you to align your financial life with what's in my word. That would include things like tithing and being generous. And he says, when you do that, the Bible is very clear. God's going to pour open the windows of heaven for you. And there'll be so much blessing, you don't even have room for it. But notice that the obedience comes first there. Don't miss that here. And I wonder in your life, might there be something that you are looking and asking and longing for God to do? And he has said that maybe he'd do it but he's waiting for you to step out in faith first. I I can't get any more specific than that because it could look like 60 different things for 60 different people. But I think if you're in that place this morning, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. God's asking you to step out in faith and you haven't done it yet maybe and that's why you haven't seen him move. I'm just saying, it's right there. I'm just delivering the mail to you, okay? One last thing before we move on into the rest of our text. I want you to notice one more thing about verse 7 that's on the screen right there. It says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means what? Sent. So notice what's happening here. This guy was unwell. He was broken. He was blind. And Jesus healed him. And then there's this word sent in there as well. Someone's being sent out to their car alarm right now, I think. God has done the same thing in your life. Let me just tell you, you and I, in and of ourselves, we are spiritually unwell. We are spiritually broken. We need to be healed and made whole. And if you're a Christian, Jesus has done that. He has healed you. And guess what, friends? Now he's sending you. It's the reaction I figured I would get. And here's the thing about being a Christian. Sometimes we get into this place where it's, oh, Yes, thank you for saving me, Lord. It's just me and Jesus. We're doing awesome. I love it. I love it. And that's good. Answer me this. Does it feel good to be saved in Jesus Christ? Yes. Let's not pretend that it doesn't. And is it wrong also to enjoy the blessing of being saved? No, it's not wrong at all. It's Sure, it's a blessing. And it, it's, it's an impactful difference maker in our lives. But listen to me. We're not supposed to just sit on that and do nothing. Jesus didn't just save you so that you could be blessed and you could feel good about yourself. Those things are true. But he also saved you so he could send you. And there's too many times where we as Christians, I as a Christian, we lack that missional urgency. We don't feel sent. I'm just comfortable. But in reality, friends, Jesus is sending us. There are thousands of people all around us all the time, right out here. A lot of them don't know Jesus. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be discipled. They need to be served. They need to be loved. We got to get up and go do something is what I'm saying. Because you've been sent. Who or, or to what might Jesus be sending you? I mean, don't answer that out loud. Who is God putting in your life? What can you do in this? Because you're sent, my friend. If you're a Christian, you've been sent. We good there? Okay, let's roll on. Here's what we're going to do. That's the miracle. That's what we've seen. We're actually going to read right now in one big block. We're going to read the rest of this chapter, and then we're going to talk about the responses of the people in it. So it'll be on the screen. I'm going to read starting at verse 8. So the man's just been healed. It says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? 
Some said, it is him. Others said, no, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees, that's the ominous music begins to play there, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said about Jesus, he is a prophet. The Jews, shockingly, did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and said that, asked them, is this your son who you say has, was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Somebody say, he gone. Thank you. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called to the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he, Jesus, is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. I love this next part. This is my favorite part in the whole chapter. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, shockingly, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, thank you for teaching us that. No, they said, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him also heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So we've got five people or five groups that we need to examine this morning and look at their response. The first one is the crowd. Somebody say the crowd. Their response is seen from verse 8 to 12. You'll notice in verse 8, it starts out, uh, it says the neighbors and those who had seen him before said, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? So in other words, they took notice. This man, something was different about him and the crowd noticed. Verse nine, some said, it is him. Others said, no, it's like him. I don't know, he just mysteriously had a twin or a clone or a doppelganger or something. So notice in that, the crowd notices, and there's a varied response to that. Some people say, hey, cool, this is the guy. Other people don't believe. They try to rationalize. No, it's not him. Varied response. Verse 10, they ask, how were your eyes opened? So there's a curiosity there, right, among the people who believed it. They wanted to know more. They saw what happened. They believed what happened. They wanted to know more. And verse 11, the guy shares his testimony. Jesus did this to me. And look at verse 12. They say, where is he? 
So now they want to know where Jesus is at. They want to know more about him. They want to get with him. And I think that's a really important trajectory that we notice in that section right there. The point is this. When Jesus is at work in your life, we've already acknowledged that he's at work in the lives of people. When Jesus is at work in your life, people will notice. They might not be able to put language to it or wonder exactly what it is that happened, but they will notice. And there will likely be a varied response to that. Some people will say, hey, you've changed. You're a lot nicer now, Braden. Or some people might not believe. You've changed, and I don't know what happened to you, and I'm not interested. Right? There's that varied response. Some of you guys have probably seen that in your own lives. From there, some people will be interested. They'll want to know more. How come you're different? And then you have a chance to tell them it's because of Jesus in my life. And, and Lord willing, we would see that same response that these guys had. Where is Jesus? What, what about Jesus? Tell me more about Jesus, right? Here's the thing, though. All of that stuff started somewhere. And where it started was with that guy's life being changed. There's a great verse in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says that as we behold the glory of the Lord... Jesus, as in as we're camping out with him, abiding with him, walking with him, pursuing him, we will be changed from one degree of glory to another after his image. In other words, it's not possible, friends, for you to get with Jesus and spend any amount of time with Jesus and not change. He changes us. I don't care how hard-hearted or stubborn you are, he's going to change you. But... If we're in a place in our lives and we're being honest saying, wow, I don't, really, I don't really notice any change in my life. Sometimes it's a little gradual and it's a little bit subtle. But like if you're in a place where nothing's changing in your walk, nothing is changing in your character. You're just plateaued. Maybe you're kind of sliding back, honestly, getting further and further from the Lord. Again, what that tells me is likely, quite possibly, that time with Jesus isn't being spent. And as a result, you're not changing. And if that is the case that you're in, don't expect that to happen. It might. It probably won't. Because it starts with a changed life. And if you're hearing that and you say, oh, well, good. I don't really want people to notice and talk about me and ask me about why I'm different. Listen, that's a whole other problem. That's a whole other conversation. The point is this, though. When you get with Jesus, you change and people will notice. Proof right there. Like I said, I'm just delivering the mail. Second group we need to look at, this one's a person. We're going to look at the man who got healed. He's got a lot to say. Starting in verse 9, he keeps saying and saying, I am the man. I am the one you're thinking about. I used to be here begging. I was blind, and now I can see. I'm different. It's me. And what I love about that, and let me be careful how, how I say this, this guy has no shame over his past. And I don't mean, obviously, to imply that anyone who is blind or like that should be, that's not what I mean at all. The point is, though, for a man of that state, he would have had some social baggage to go along with that. And you can kind of hear it. Isn't that the guy that used to, like, beg over there? And the guy says, that was me. Here's the cool thing about our lives. We don't have to be ashamed of our past. I I don't know, if you're anything like me, you've probably done things in your past that you might otherwise regret, and that was really dumb, and I shouldn't have done that, and if I could go back, I would change that. Here's the thing, though. We don't have to live as Christians in that kind of guilt, in that kind of shame, because Jesus has taken that. He has scorned our shame on the cross. So we don't have to rub our faces in the mud over it. Matter of fact, Jesus has redeemed you. That means that he has taken from where you were, and now he's pointing you in a new direction. And like we talked about already, he's using all that bad stuff to create the story of your life for his glory and your good. So we don't have to live. Because I hear people all the time, oh, back in the day I did this and whatever. Yeah, but what about today? Like Jesus has freed you. He's redeemed you. Let's go. Make sense? Heads nodding. Okay. So there's that. Verse 11, the guy shares his testimony. The man called Jesus, anointed my eyes. He made mud. He did the spit thing because it's godly. Thank you. And uh, he shares his testimony. So again, we need to normalize that as Christians, right? You notice that this isn't in like capital letters, verse 11, that he shared. It's just what he did. 
He shared his testimony. Let it be so in our lives. Let us be freely ready to just share what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives. It doesn't have to be weird. We make it to be weird. It's not weird. It's what we need to do. Remember, you're sent. I told you that already. They ask him in verse 12, where is Jesus? He says, I don't know. What I like about that, that shows this guy's heart. He's humble. He's okay not knowing all the answers. I don't know where Jesus is at. But in verse 15, that doesn't slow him down. He tells it again. So even though he doesn't have all the answers figured out, he's still going out and being effective and being a witness. In verse 17, he says, Jesus is a prophet when they ask him. That isn't like a wrong thing. Part of Jesus' ministry, part of the role that he fulfilled was prophetic. But he's more than just that. Here's my point. Again, this guy doesn't even get the full scope of who Jesus is. But he's still going. He still gets that sending bit. He's still being an effective witness. Verse 25, he says, hey, this is where the objections start to come up. He says, hey, whether this Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know, but here's what he did for me. All I know is I was blind and he healed me and now I can see. He's comfortable not knowing everything. Verse 27, that's my favorite verse in here where he says to the Pharisees, do you also want to be his disciples? Which was just kind of a nice burn. And they get furious at him. But here's the thing about that verse. The guy made the sales pitch. Hey, do you want to know Jesus? He closed the deal, or he tried. I don't think they were in a receiving mood, but that's not his fault. So sometimes we got to get to that place. We're talking about it. Hey, do you want to know Jesus and just see where it goes? Verse 30, the guy starts to get onto a little bit of a sermon. He starts talking about, hey, interesting. You don't know where the guy comes from, but he must be from God because God doesn't listen to sinners. And, and this guy opened my eyes. And if anyone's a worshiper of God, God listens to him. Kind of another sermon for another day. That isn't wrong theology, but that could possibly put you on a slippery slope of thinking like, oh, God will do anything I want him to do. Well, that's not the case. But again, the point is this guy's sharing what he knows even if it isn't the most 100% sound, everything scholarly argument. He's going for it. He's reasoning with them. Verse 35, he says to Jesus, who is the son of man? Again, he doesn't even get the whole picture yet. Jesus says, it's me. And the guy then says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. Now he gets it. That's the point this whole thing is trying to lead us to, by the way. That's who Jesus is, and we worship him. Some people, even folk that sit in church, they get some of Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy, died on the cross, yeah, yeah, for my sins. But we don't get to that place of we believe and we worship. Therefore, we miss the point if we don't get to that stage. Here's the point in this whole thing, this guy about this man. Watch my hands. He seems like a regular, normal person, right? Nothing like astronomically special other than the fact that Jesus healed him. My point is he's not a Bible scholar that we know of. Just a regular guy. He's not a pastor or an elder or a Sunday school teacher or a whatever. He's a guy that Jesus showed up and did something recently in his life and he's going off of that and being effective in his witness. I hear people all the time in our day, oh, I can't go talk to that person. Oh, I can't disciple that person. I don't know enough. Hello? Hello? It's right there. Like we've got to, okay, here's what I'll say to you. If that's our attitude, I love you. This is not insulting, promise. I'm saying this to build you up. If that's our attitude with regard to witnessing and being public about our faith, we've got to get over ourselves. What'd your pastor tell you today? He told me to get over myself. That ministered to me. But for real, we need to normalize this activity because this is exactly, this is just the rhythm of this guy's life. It needs to be the rhythm of ours as well. This is a regular guy that Jesus did something extraordinary for. He has a story to tell and he tells it. You folks, we are people who Jesus has done something extraordinary for and we got to tell our story. Capiche? Oh, I love that. Thank you. Next group, the Pharisees. These guys are fun and sometimes cringy to talk about. These guys were the spiritual leaders of the day. These were the people that on paper should have known better, known the best out of anybody. Here's where they start. Verse 13, they call the, the, guy, they call the guy in. They find out this all happened on the Sabbath. 
And they therefore say, well, this Jesus who did this, he can't be from God. He's a sinner because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And here's the thing about that. What they're really saying is this Jesus doesn't fit into our traditions. Jesus doesn't fit into my box, my understanding, my experience, so I reject him. People today do that all the time. Well, I don't know, I can't, I can't answer all the questions science-wise, so no to God, no Jesus, no, I think I'm a good person, this whole God thing doesn't fit into my narrative, so I reject it. That's foolish. The point is not for God to fit into your framework, but do you fit into God's framework. That's the whole thing. These guys missed it. They're totally backwards. It says in verse 17, they call the guy forward, they say, what do you say about Jesus? Which I find really interesting. Because obviously, when you read this chapter, these Pharisees thought and felt and viewed themselves as high and mighty compared to this man, right? It's very clear. They looked down on this guy. Do you really think they cared what he thought about Jesus? I don't really think so. I think they're hoping that this guy in verse 17 will just say, oh yeah, Jesus, nice guy, the end. And the Pharisees can then say, yeah, you heard it. Jesus is only a nice guy. Let's move on with our day. Of course, that totally backfires. He... He goes on and really tells them who Jesus is. Verse 18, they continued to not believe, so they call his parents in. These guys are willing to do everything but believe, as far as I'm concerned. The parents come in. That doesn't go well for them either. So they send the parents away. They call the guy back in, and they say in verse 24, give glory to God. That sounds like a really spiritual sentiment, right? It isn't. They're trying to intimidate this guy. What they're implying is, hey, God is watching you. Don't you dare keep lying to us about this Jesus guy. We know you're lying. He wasn't. And then they, they go on to say, we know this Jesus is a sinner. What do you mean you know he's a sinner? How do you know that? What proof do you have? Even if you weren't clearly wrong, you still have no proof. These guys are totally prejudiced. They've made up their mind already. Verse 26 more of the same. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Even though he's already explained it at least twice. Verse 28, this after he makes the invitation about, do you want to be his disciples? They don't like that. They say in verse 28, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You can just see them puffing out their chest. Moses. The whole thing about Moses here, Moses was the Old Testament figure through whom the law of God was given. So these guys were all about the law. That's why they love Moses. We follow Moses because we follow the law because we're God's people. Oops, they missed it. Sorry. Verse 29, they go on to say, we don't know where this Jesus comes from. Can I just tell you? That's actually a lie. Because if you read a couple chapters back in John 7, at least twice in there, it says, we know where this Jesus comes from. And now they say, we don't know where he comes from. We don't know where he's at. What a lie. They're so hypocritical. They're so backwards, so self-righteous. Verse 34, they say to the man, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. So they cast him out, right? That's where I say, they're up here on the pedestal and he's down low. Don't bother talking to me and teaching me. So self-righteous to the degree of physical force. They threw the guy out of their sight. Verse 40, they asked Jesus, are we also blind? That's a rhetorical question. They, they don't honestly think they're blind. They're saying, you must be crazy, Jesus, if you think we're blind. The Pharisees. Here's the point. There's like many things wrong with all of that, okay? Here's the point. Just to sum it up, these guys are super arrogant, self-righteous, prideful, full of themselves. They're clearly positioned here as being offside with God. Okay, can you all see that? It's very obvious. I hope you can see it. Here's the point. Arrogance is never the pathway to truth. Self-righteousness is never the pathway to salvation. So as someone maybe that would be a non-Christian, if you go through your life and you're smug and your rejection of God, I don't believe in that rubbish. I was going to say something else, but I don't believe in that stuff. I'm good. I don't need God. I'm moral. I'm doing just fine. Jesus says in verse 41 later on, he says, actually, you're not good. He said, those who say and have the, the attitude of I'm good, I can see. He says, you're also, you're still blind. You're not right before me. And as Christians, we can kind of sometimes, in all kinds of different ways, we can take on a smug attitude over certain things too, right? Again, not you guys, somebody else way down there. And 
like, again, let's not miss that here either. When we're smug, when we're self-righteous in our walk, when we have a holier-than-thou attitude than anyone else, that's clearly not the heart of God. So when we're in that place, what we need to do is not continue to perpetrate that. We need to repent is what we need to do. If you want to live the life Jesus has created you and redeemed you to live, if you want to grow in your walk, if you want to be free, like we talked about last week, the pathway to that is always, always, always to humble yourself. Always. So, matter of fact, pause. Lord, I pray that you would break the spirit, if it is in us or in me, God, that spirit of pride, self-centeredness, self-righteousness. Holy Spirit, would you break that in us this morning? We just want to humble ourselves before you in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Next, two more to go. You're doing great. Let's talk about the parents. This one is kind of rough, I'll be honest. This one's not very good. You see it on the screen there. They start out okay. They say, yes, this man is our son. He definitely was born blind, and we don't know how he now sees. We don't know how it happened or who did it. Not a bad start. Here's where it goes off the rails. In verse 21, they say, ask him. He's of age. He'll tell you. He can speak for himself. That sounds like, oh, good job, parents, giving your kid independence. Actually, what they're doing is they're copping out. It's a huge, that's like a category one cop out. They're trying to pass the responsibility on to somebody else. They have a chance to witness there and to testify about something. And they go, mm, no, he'll do it. Cop out. And it says why they copped out. In verse 22, they feared the Jews. Because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confesses Jesus as the Christ, they'll be thrown out. Remember he gone? Um, they don't want to face the negative repercussions. It doesn't really say whether they believe or don't believe, but what's clear is they're afraid of what might happen to them. They're acting out of fear, and they've copped out. And it's so bad that not, not only do they just pass the buck to somebody else, who do they pass the buck to? Their son. They're so scared of what will happen to them, but they're totally fine with throwing him to the wolves. Well, good luck, son. Whatever happens to you, happens to you. That is, that is like grade A cowardly, friends. And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, just in case you think, oh, well, maybe that doesn't apply to me. I mean, we're tempted to do the same stuff. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that we as Christians have not been given a spirit of fear. In other words, when you're acting in fear, you're not acting out of the power of the Holy Spirit. He never leads you in that direction. Instead, he's given us a spirit of power. Somebody say power. In other words, when you're in the will of God, walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll be made bold. It's just what'll happen, because that's what the Spirit does to us. But when we act in fear, like these guys did, you know what it does? It shows you what you treasure the most. And I know as good church folk, we'd like to say, I treasure Jesus the most. And maybe that's true. I hope it's true. But when we act in fear, what we're doing is we're showing that we're actually treasuring and valuing something more than Jesus. What in your life are you afraid of? What are you walking in fear instead of faith toward? It's the very same deal as up here. And like we said last week, anytime we treasure anything above Jesus, we're not living in freedom. God's got more and got better for us than that. So let's not do what the parents did is what I'm saying. Got it? Last one, and then we'll close. Let's talk about Jesus. He's the other person in this that we need to examine and see. In verse 35, Jesus has been largely absent through most of this. He healed the guy, and then he exited stage left, and now he's back. He heard that they cast the man out of the synagogue, and he found him. So just right there, that's proof right there. Jesus has a heart for those who are marginalized and oppressed. Jesus didn't just come to hang around with the people that had it all put together. He has a heart for those who are beaten down. And if you're in a place like that this morning, you know what that means? God has a special grace for you in your life right now where you're at. He found the man and he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man says, who is the Son of Man? That I might believe in him. And Jesus says, it is I who speak to you. That's a claim to be God. Plain and simple. And everything else that has happened in this account up until this point, as I said earlier, it happened to get us here. 
and in verse 38 where the man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Everything else that took place, that is the end goal. That is the ultimate finish line right there. It's not even just that he was healed. Is it cool that he was healed? Yes. But that was the point of it, right there. And again, in our lives, everything that's happened up until this point today, sitting in church, God is trying to lead you somewhere. Maybe God is trying to get your attention today. And where he's trying to lead you is, Lord, I believe, and I worship him. Yes, for you. Yes, in your circumstance, in your situation. Jesus goes on to say in verse 39, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What he's saying is that he came to give people who are far from him a chance to be saved and brought close to him and to be healed and restored and made well and reconciled to God. And the pathway to that is not to be puffed up and say, yep, God, I'm good, I'm good on my own. No, it's to humble yourself. It's the people that realize I'm blind, I am broken, I need help, I need to be saved. For those people, Jesus says, you'll be made to see. And the vice versa is true. Those who think they have it all put together, I'm good without you, God. He says, you're blind. Here's the point in all this. We'll sum it up and then we'll close. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he came to the earth and he lived and he died in your place and he rose from the grave in victory and he ascended into heaven and right now he is ruling and reigning and he is calling us and inviting us to accept what he's done, to believe in the grace that he's offering you and to surrender your life to him in repentance of sin and in faith. Do you believe in the Son of Man today? You can answer that out loud. And is your belief, don't answer this out loud, is your belief leading you to that place of worship? Is it leading you to a place of obedience? Is it leading you to a deeper faith? Is it leading you to a deeper walk? Is it leading you to a life that is centered on Jesus? Is it leading you to a life where Jesus is the greatest treasure in it? That is the question. That is the point of what the whole thing, what we've read today. That is the purpose of John chapter 9.